You're listening to Just Another Fanboy Presents the Death of Superman, and this is episode number 12, Who's Buried in Superman's Tomb? Hello and welcome to Just Another Fanboy Presents. I'm your host, my name is Steven, and today we're going to glide into week number 12 of the epic crossover event, The Death and Return of Superman. We watched as Superman died fighting the monster Doomsday, bore witness to his funeral, and cried alongside his loved ones. But today, we go on the hunt for Superman's body in Action Comics number 686. This issue hit the stands 30 years ago this week on January 5th, 1993. It had a cover price of $1.25, and the title of this issue is who's buried in Superman's tomb. It was written by Roger Stern, penciled by Jackson Geis. Inks were by Dennis Rodier. The letters by Bill Oakley and the colorist was Glenn Whitmore. All right, so let me tell you what happened in this here issue. The synopsis was provided to us by DCFandom.com and edited by yours truly. Don't want to brag, but I did do a little bit of the editing. Here we go. On leave from Cadmus, Guardian apprehends a group of armed criminals in a stolen delivery van when he receives a telepathic summons from Doublex, who urges him to return to Cadmus immediately. Lex Luthor, on his way to Centennial Park, confides in Sidney Happerson his paranoia over Superman's missing body, thinking that Superman might have faked his death just as Luther did himself. Luther arrives at the park where Supergirl fills him in on everything that went down underground outside of Superman's tomb in the previous issue. Maggie Sawyer asks Luther why a tomb would be equipped with access vents and a secret tunnel. Luther claims that the site had originally been planned to hold a time capsule but it turned out to be ideal for the construction of Superman's tomb and memorial statue. The group, consisting of Supergirl, Luther, Happerson, Sawyer, and Turpin, decide to check out the tunnel. Guardian arrives at Cadmus to find Double X along with Tony, Big Words, Rodriguez, John, Gabby, Gabrielli, Pat, Scrapper, McGuire, Thomas, Tommy Tompkins, then Walter, no nickname Johnson, attempting to get into lab number seven with no success. It seems that Paul Westfield is, according to X, locked up in lab seven with an advanced study team in violation of all known protocols. Tommy and Words, who have been working on overriding the security to the door, succeed, and the door slides open to reveal Westfield and his team along with Superman's body. Guardian, in a fit of rage, grabs up Westfield by the throat and pushes him back into a wall. Westfield claims that all he's trying to do here is clone Superman, you know, bring him back, just like they had done for Guardian. But Guardian argues that this situation is different, that Superman's brain is dead, and you gots to have a living brain to put inside a cloned body. Big Word says, however that the mental impressions that X previously absorbed from Superman on the previous occasions in which the two met could be enough if a clone is made. Reluctantly, Guardian agrees, 
but only on the condition that the project's head doctors be in charge, not Westfield. Meanwhile, in the apartment that Lois and Clark once shared, as Lana, Jonathan, and Martha prepare to go back to Smallville, Lois watches a news report of the searches being made in the wake of Doomsday's destruction. The count currently stands at 36 found survivors and 189 dead, with hundreds more still unaccounted for. Among the missing, the news continues, are Baseball Hall of Famer Hank the Hammer Halloran, comedian Marty Beckman, and Daily Planet reporter Clark Kent. Back in the underground tunnels, Luther accidentally sets off an explosive charge placed by Cadmus agents to seal up the path and hide their crime. Everybody survives, but the explosion cracked a spot in the cave that lies beneath Hobbs River, flooding parts of the cave. The group flees, returning to the surface and agreeing to keep the news of Superman's missing body a secret so as not to create riots. In the meantime, a cult that worships Superman has set up camp outside the memorial. Everyone in the group knows that Cadmus is responsible for the theft of Superman's body, with Sawyer and Turpin wondering what's Luther's agenda in all of this. And Luther is dying to know what Westfield is working on over at Cadmus. As the issue ends, Lois says goodbye to Lana, Jonathan, and Martha at the airport. But Lana turns back, and she and Lois have a tearful goodbye. So let's just dig into this just a little bit deeper, and we'll see what I thought about this whole thing. Let's look at the cover here real quick. This says Funeral for a Friend, number six. It's got an eight in the triangle. This is number eight. And we as the reader are standing inside Superman's tomb looking out, and Supergirl is standing in the doorway. We can see behind her the cityscape of Metropolis, and some gravestones. And it says, who's buried in Superman's tomb? And then below that, and why is Lex Luthor so paranoid? Well, let's find out. (laughs) I don't know why I said it like that, but I did. So as the issue opens, the Guardian is chasing down a van load of armed thugs. He's on his motorcycle with the big shield as the front of the motorcycle that's still very reminiscent of Captain America. I get such Captain America vibes off of Guardian, especially in this issue. There's there's a lot of Cap vibes coming off of him in this issue. And I don't know if if that's purposeful, if Guardian is meant to be DC's Captain America. I mean, he's not a symbol of American freedom. He's not standing up for America and doing all that American stuff and waving the flag and all that, but he's very much a man out of time type of guy who, again, carries a shield and rides a motorcycle and uh, he just speaks like Cap. He just, he's, he's just Captain America. He just is. I don't care what you say. I mean, he was Jim Harper. That's who he is. He, all right, I'm trying to remember back to, because a lot, I'm talking like a fool. See, a lot of times as I'm going through this series, I, these memories come into my brain that I think come from reading The Death of Superman, but they actually come from an audio drama that the BBC made that is uh, basically an an adaptation 
of the death of Superman. And I, I don't remember what it's called off the top of my head. I, I plan on talking about it during one of the breaks when there are no issues being published. But I had it on tape cassette back in the 90s. It was like, I don't know, three or four tapes. And I listened to it quite often. I had a job on the night shift working at a factory that manufactured medical tubing. I would have been in my 20s at this point. And I spent a third of my night sitting at a little table, dipping medical tubing into a bonding agent, and then sticking these connectors onto the tubing so that then they could be wrapped up and packaged. And then in hospitals, doctors could open up the package and stick like a piece of medical equipment in there, like one of them sucky things that sucks blood out of chest cavities and junk like that. But we were allowed to listen to stuff on uh, on on headphones basically before they had mp3 players and, and junk like that so i had a i had a, a walkman a sony walkman a tape cassette player thing with uh headphones and i sat there and listened to books on tape a lot and this was one that i listened to all the time and when they put this together for the bbc they added a lot this was um something that they expected you know it was going out i guess over the radio and they knew that people, uh, you know, a big audience of, of folks that would be tuning in may not understand everything that's going on in Superman comics at the time. And so they do a lot of, uh, well, they do a very good job of explaining the backstories of certain characters. And so you learn all about Guardian and the Newsboy Legion and junk like that from this audio drama i believe i don't believe you get a lot of that during this series the uh the the scientists we meet later in this story that all have nicknames big words and and scrapper and gabby and tommy which really isn't much of a nickname they were the newsboy legion and i believe they were um from the world war ii era at this point i i don't know i don't know how the timelines match up but I feel like based on what I remember, they were World War II era characters and they were uh, or maybe just the 60s. Maybe maybe it only went back to the 60s. I really have no idea. I'm uh, I'm trying to remember stuff here, folks. So I do invite you to maybe go and do a little digging yourself. I, I didn't I didn't do a lot of research. I'm just trying to go by memory. But they were four kids that lived in suicide slum in metropolis and jim harper was a beat cop and they were part of his beat and they would get in adventures and, and he was also the guardian at the time and and at some point these four scrappy little newsboy legion suicide slum living kids grew up to uh work at cadmus and clone things and they're the ones that brought jim harper back to life i guess i guess he was an old man and they transferred his brain to a new body. And that's, you know, it's not being frozen in a block of ice and then being revived later by the Avengers, but it's still thematically is kind of similar to Cap's origin. Anyway, I'm a, uh, I'm tangenting. When we go to the next page, following page one, we get a, a double page spread of Guardian jumping off of the motorcycle uh, into the van. We're actually, as the reader, we're inside the van 
looking out at the Guardian jumping in. And my first thought when I flipped to this page or, or swiped to this page, since I'm reading it digitally, is that Jackson Geis and Dennis Rodier are really channeling their inner Jack Kirby here. This looks very much like a Jack Kirby type of character and pose and action and just everything about it screams Jack Kirby. Uh, he's he's holding his shield, and this is when I notice that though he has the, the front of his motorcycle is the shield, it's actually not the shield that he uses. It's just shaped, and it's just a big version of his shield. And his shield is basically shaped like a policeman's badge, I think. I think that's what it's supposed to represent, or a police officer's badge. I should stop doing that. That's bad male idiot. But... He leaps aboard this freaking van and he starts beating up all these thugs. One of them during the melee actually leaps out of the van. I guess he was thinking he was just going to leap out into the road and roll it off and jump up and run away. But Guardian's motorcycle is still out there next to the van. It is apparently has a, a bunch of computer circuitry inside of it and it's running on autopilot. So as the guy jumps... He sees the motorcycle that he's not expecting and he lands on the motorcycle and in essence, the motorcycle kind of captures him. And I have to say that this dude that's jumping out of the van, there's just something about him that does not look like your typical gun wielding, van stealing thug. And I'm not talking about the color of his skin, but he is a... Uh, He's wearing like a, a tuck. He's wearing a button up shirt, first of all, that's tucked in to jeans. And he's got, I don't know, short cropped gray hair and a gray mustache and beard. He just, I don't know, maybe he's in disguise. Maybe he was disguised as uh, the security guard for wherever this van was that they, they ripped it off. He just looks like somebody that would be a greeter at a Walmart. He doesn't look like a, a, a gun wielding, van stealing violent criminal. And and I, I found that choice a bit odd as I was reading this. Now, the cops show up. Guardian hands off these thugs to the, to the cops. And one of the cops tells them that uh, Guardian may have himself a little problem. Says that the, the creeps that they're loading into cars are making a lot of noise. They're, they're making accusations that sound as if, or make it sound, that make it sound as if they are completely innocent, that Guardian attacked him and assaulted them and that he could be up on assault charges and, and you know, they could file these assault charges and blah, blah, blah. And the cops just telling Guardian just to just just, you know, be aware. And the Guardian's like, oh, that's OK. My bike recorded everything. And a little laser disc, a little small compact laser disc slides out of a area of the bike, which has apparently cameras all over it. And it got everything on video and he gives it to the cop. And the cop is super excited about that. He goes, all right, with a big exclamation point. And he says, the DA's office is going to love you for this. And so then Guardian motors away on his motorcycle, which has wings on it. I, I don't understand. I mean, it's like a platform where his feet would go and they, it, lo it almost looks like there are rocket launchers on each side of the platform, like, like the wings of a freaking jet. So I don't know if his motorcycle flies. I have no idea. But this is when Double X 
calls out to him in his brain, in his mind, Double X using his telepathic ability. And remember, if, if you don't remember who Double X is, he's a DN alien, whatever the heck that means. And he looks like a freaking alien with little horns coming out the top of his head. And he's telling Guardian that there's trouble and that they need him back at the project and he wants him to hurry. And so Guardian spins around on his bike or whatever. He, he floors it, which you don't really do on a bike because the, the throttle is, is on the, the handlebars, but you know, the hand grips, but he, 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 he throttles up enough that the bike pops a wheelie and you get to see a really good view of them wings with the rocket launchers on them, which is what I'm going to assume they are. And he passes a limousine, which inside is Lex Luthor with this guy, Sidney Happerson. I don't remember who Happerson is. Every time I read the name Happerson, I am hearing the voice of Lex Luthor in my head from either the Superman animated series or the Justice League animated series or one of the direct-to-DVD DC animated movies, I can just hear Lex Luthor in my head saying, Happerson, and I don't know what it's from. I just, I can't get that out of my head. But he's worried over the fact that Superman's body is missing. And because Lex Luthor faked his death when he learned that he had cancer and had his brain transplanted into a young, fit, cloned body with a full head of red hair, He's assuming that Superman is doing the same thing. And again, I don't know who Happerson is in relation to Lex. I don't know if he's one of his scientists or a, just a general lackey or if he's uh, he's his, his, his personal assistant. I don't know. But Happerson's trying to calm him down. When Lex is talking about how he faked his own death and all this junk and they put his brain into the body of a fit clone we get a bit, you know, some images from this, you know, like some uh, some flashbacks. And we see a, a lovely image of what is supposed to be his brain floating in fluids and uh, his eyeballs on freaking weird nerve endings like stalks almost. <laughs> and uh, it's very unnerving. It's a freaky to look at just these eyeballs that are staring at me, these googly eyes. And I wish they would stop. But it's nice to know that uh, not only did Lex get to keep his brain, he kept his eyes, too. Because uh, the eyes are the window of the soul, people. And his eyes are dreamy. Anyway, Guardian arrives at this place called uh, Red Horse Garage, someplace in Suicide Slum. And he goes inside, and there's like an elevator in there that he can park his bike on. And that takes him way underground, where there is a like a rail car, like almost like a monorail, except for the, the, the rail is, is at the top and the, the rail car is at the bottom. It hangs from the rail, basically. And there's just this whole under, underground network of tunnels, apparently, underneath Metropolis and Suicide Slum. Slum? I, I almost said Suicide Slum. Suicide Slum. But here is a moment as he is uh, descending in the lift that really makes me think of Captain America because as he's descending, he's thinking to himself. Because again, I've, I've said this in a number of episodes, this is still back in the day when they used thought balloons instead of narration boxes to get the inner thoughts of our characters. And he's thinking to himself as he's descending in this lift that 
Kids nowadays in suicide slum would be amazed at all the automated systems buried beneath the streets of their neighborhood. And then he says in his head, the thing that makes me think of Captain America. I must remember to commend the maintenance division. I know this hydraulic lift hasn't been used in months, but it still runs as smoothly as the day it was installed. You know, I think most people wouldn't think about making a mental note of that to go tell somebody that they did a good job. But Guardian sure does. Superman would. And Captain America surely would as well. So then we got Lex arriving at the park and... Despite the fact that he says that it's the middle of the night, uh, the colorist, I guess, didn't get that memo because it's bright as day in these panels. It's snowing. Dan Turpin is there. And apparently Maggie got him a pair of trousers, or as he puts it, trow. And he's got a SCU hat on. I don't remember any. Well, I guess he did come out of that cave in the previous issue without his hat his bowler hat that he's famous for. And uh, he just looks radically different from the Tom Grummet version of Dan Turpin. And it, so does so does everybody, frankly. You know, that's, that's the one drawback, I guess, of a crossover like this is that uh, each of the creative teams have their own, uh, the artists have their own vision as far as what they feel these characters should look like. There, there's not a, there's not a directive that says you must draw these characters this way so that they look alike going throughout this event. I mean, Lex Luthor has the long red hair and the red beard with no mustache, but his hair is a different length than how Tom Grummet draws it. And it's not as big and flowing as how John Bogdanov draws it. And uh, if you hadn't told me, and not you, I'm I'm specifically talking to, I guess, the people that made this book. If they hadn't told me that this was Inspector Turpin, I'd have no idea that this is who it is. Jackson Geis has a very realistic drawing style. His, his characters look like real people. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I enjoy his art. It's just uh, it's quite different than John Bogdanov or Dan Jurgens or Tom Grummet. They're just all three, you know, Dan Jurgens and Tom Grummet, their styles are, are similar, yet not quite the same, but theirs are similar enough. And then John McDonough and Jackson Geis are on opposite ends of the spectrum. It's like you got Dan Jurgens and Tom Grummet in the middle, Jackson Geis over on one end, and John McDonough on the other. So they go into the tomb. Inspector Henderson is there. And he's inspecting the breach in the tomb wall. And Supergirl had stated in the previous issue that it looks like, based on the way the tunnel was dug, that it was somebody coming into the tomb and not somebody going out. And, you know, I guess we needed old Henderson here in this issue to put his gold stamp on that assessment because we have this panel where he's telling Supergirl, you were right, Supergirl, from the scoring and the rubble, it's obvious that the tomb was broken into, not out of it. And I guess Supergirl's assessment wasn't good enough. We needed this dude, this man, to tell us that uh, she was right. So readers, you can sleep well tonight because I know that you were tossing and turning in your bed for the past week after you read that previous issue 
when Supergirl said that and you were going, no, I don't believe that because she's a girl. Maybe if a man told us that she's right, then we'd believe it. So now we believe. Thank you, Inspector Henderson. I am a believer. And thank you, Roger Stern, for including that in this book. Wow, that was kind of mean, wasn't it, (laughs) of me? I don't know if that's how he meant it. Maybe not consciously. Anyway, we go back to the Cadmus Project. We meet the Newsboy Legion. And as a reader who really kind of started Superman in the post-crisis with this series, you know, like I said, I've read the John Byrne I read the start of the John Byrne run, that is the kickoff of Superman in the post-crisis, but I didn't get that far ever back in the day. I am going to be making up for that. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. Anyway, I have no idea who these guys are, is what I'm trying to say here. And frankly, if it hadn't been for that audio drama that the BBC made, and don't think that just because the BBC made it, that everybody in the audio drama are speaking in British accents, because they're not. They're speaking in the American accents that British people do, which I just love, love that British American accent. But thanks to that, that's how I know even just a slight bit about the Newsboy Legion and, and who Cadmus is. And, 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 and again, even that, I, I don't know much. It has been a while since I've listened to that. And I have avoided listening to it again. It is out there to listen to on YouTube I don't think you can buy it anymore, though. But back to the story, folks, okay? Quit distracting me. This is when Guardian and everybody bursts into the lab and finds Westfield there with Superman's body, and Guardian is just, he's had enough. That was the straw that broke the camel's back when it comes to Westfield. He's been getting irritated with Westfield during this whole affair. But coming in and seeing Superman's body there, he has freaking had enough. And he literally, he just goes at Westfield and <laughs> grabs him by the throat and shoves him back against the wall. And he's ready to punch him in the face. But Double X tries to pull him back and he says, Jim, take it easy. This isn't the way. And Guardian says, not the best way, maybe. But our esteemed administrator here just made it the only way. Now, this is the guy that showed up to the destruction of that area in the small town a few issues back where Maxima and Superman were fighting Doomsday and the gas main was punctured and then an electrical wire went down and caused a spark and everything exploded and it knocked Maxima and Superman off their feet and they actually blacked out for a bit. Doomsday leapt away or leaped away or whatever it is, and then Guardian shows up and he's all like, all this destruction, did this have to happen? Wasn't there another way? And he just felt very preachy at that point, you know? Superman is fighting an alien rage monster that's killing people and destroying towns, and you, I guess, want Superman to talk him down? I I don't know, but he's changed his tune here. That tells you how much he cares about the rules because Westfield got a presidential order that said he couldn't touch Superman's body. And Westfield clarifies, well, no, not exactly. My order said to allow Metropolis to hold their funeral. I interpreted that to mean that once the services were over, my original authorization to collect and study alien decedents 
would resume. And uh, yeah, he probably does deserve a smack in the mouth for that. But he explains that he wants to clone Superman in the same way that the Guardian was cloned. But as the Guardian explains, his situation was different. He wasn't dead. He was dying, apparently. I don't know. Again, I don't know the exact situation. But they were able to transfer his living brain into a cloned body because this version of cloning does not include cloning a functional brain. So the science here basically is saying that you can clone the body, but you can't take somebody's thoughts and feelings and memories and clone that as well. And so you have to have their brain to transfer over to this cloned body. And since Superman's dead, his brain is dead too. There's no brain activity. There's there's nothing there to uh, transfer over. But then it's pointed out that Double X has had encounters with Superman a couple of times in the past, and he has been able to absorb Superman's mental impressions. And therefore, it's like he's got a copy of Superman's personality and his thoughts and his feelings and all that stuff in his brain. And that he can mentally transfer that into the brain of the clone. There you go. Fixed. All done. Big bang, boom. New Superman. And so uh, Guardian's like, all right, we'll, we'll do it. But uh, Westfield, you're not in charge because uh, I want to punch you in the face. We have the moment down in the tunnel when the bomb explodes. We have the, the Lois watching the TV and Tony Stark is the news reporter. This guy looks like Tony Stark. Can't tell if that's a Tony Stark mustache on his face or if that's just a shadow, but this guy looks like Tony Stark who's doing this report. But we do get this moment here when they're getting ready to leave to go to the airport and Martha says to Lois, are you sure there isn't anything more we can do here? And Lois smiles and says to herself in her head, listen to her. She's lost her only son and it's me she's worried about. A lot of her is in Clark, was in Clark, she corrects herself. But that's uh, that's something I always like to point out about Superman, is that the, the story of Superman is very much a, you know, the whole nature versus nurture argument. Here's this baby that comes to Earth and is destined to be the most powerful being on this Earth. And were he raised by somebody different, he may have decided to use his powers for evil. But because he was raised by a, a good family who taught him right in the heartland of Kansas. I can say it like that because I'm currently sitting in the heartland of Kansas. Gosh darn it. But that's one of the reasons why I like Superman so much. Because his whole thing is uh, he was just raised to be a good guy. And whether or not he had superpowers, he would have still devoted his life to helping people. I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm fairly confident, 100%, that Clark Kent, had he not had superpowers, he would probably still be doing something to help people. Back to the tunnel, the explosion causes the river to flow into the tunnel, flooding them, and they all take off and leave and go outside and find this cult who worships Superman. This is not the first time they've appeared. We have an editor's note to tell us that they were last seen back in Action Comics Weekly 638 and that they were originally from the state of California. So one of the cops say, say that they, they started out in California. They actually worship Superman, and I don't mean hero worship. 
and they're wearing these big blue robes with uh, the Superman S shield on the front and their their priest or whatever they want to call him. He's got long flowing blonde hair and a big full blonde beard and mustache. And he's saying, and I say to you, sisters and brothers, do not despair. Be not afraid. In our house of greatest need, Superman shall return to us from beyond the grave. And this girl next to him says, yes, he will return and save us all. Say the name, say the name and be free. And then they all start chanting, Superman, Superman. And uh, it's all pretty crazy. <laughs> I think it's pretty funny. It's a, it's a pretty funny twist. I love it. And uh, it's just another one of these things that, you know, this is not the first time, like I said, this is not the first time these people have shown up. They were in uh, a previous issue. So obviously they were part of a previous storyline. And it, it just makes me want to get back there and read all that stuff. And, and, and I will, okay? That's what I'm telling you folks. That's what I'm teasing. I'm teasing something. And again, I may have announced it by now. I'm, I'm recording this back in early December. This is a, uh, this will go out a whole month after I'm done recording this. So who knows? Who knows what's going to happen in a month? But I don't think I've, I don't think I would have announced anything by now. There's a lot of work to be done. That's all I'm going to say. God, stop poking at me. The issue ends with Lois taking Lana, Martha, and Jonathan to the airport. Lex Air. And, uh, I, I got I to gotta say here real quick, I love how everything is owned by Lex Luthor, first of all, and that not just that it's named after him, you know, freaking Trump has his name all over everything. That's his main goal in life is to have his name on stuff. But he uses his last name like a, a, a lot of folks I think would. You know, it's not Donald Towers or Don Towers or Don Corp, just like it's Lex Corp. And Lex Air, I just think it's funny that he uses his first name when he names, you know, when, when this kind of stuff is named after him. Oh, the Lex Model 19 or something. You know, I just think it's funny because that would mean that if I decided to, uh, you know, if suddenly I came into a few billion dollars and decided that I was going to buy up a bunch of stuff and be a rich megalomaniac who wants to control the world because that's what you do when you get a billion dollars. That's people who have a billion dollars. What they want to do is keep that billion dollars. And not only that, but get more money. And the best way for them to do that is to control the world. And so if I was one of those people and I wanted to start my own airline, this means I'd get to call it Steve Air. And my, my corporation would be called Steve Corp. I really want to do that. I want something named after me, but my first name. I'm trying to think of some of the other stuff that Lex has that's named after him. So I can keep making this joke because I think it's pretty funny. You may not, but that's not really why I'm telling these jokes. They're for me. I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> anyway, we get this moment here at the end of the issue that almost had me in tears. It didn't move me as much as the scene where Lois calls Jonathan and Martha breaks down and Martha tells her that, that they're coming, they're on their way. That just still, even just saying that I get a little shudder. It's just, it was such a good scene. This is uh Lana and Jonathan and Martha are, are walking up the jetway to their, to their jet, their, their jet plane, their, their Steve air, Steve plane. 
And Lois, of course, she can't go with him. She's she's waving goodbye. And Lana turns around and it kind of dawns on her that, you know, for for many years, she was in love with Clark Kent, Lana Lang. She realized eventually that her her love for him wasn't what she thought it was. That's why she's marrying Pete Ross. But as she's thinking about that, she it kind of just dawns on her exactly what Lois must be feeling like with Clark being gone. And so she turns around and runs back to her and they hug and they both cry. And Lana tells her that if you ever need a shoulder, and that's as far as she gets, and, so, and Lois says, sure. Lana says, I promise whenever you need me, I'll be there for you always. And it ends with a tear running down Lana's hand. Again, it didn't move me as much as that other scene, but it was slightly, it was slightly moving. There was a slight bit of movement there, just not a lot. It was a good scene, though. It was a good way to end the book. But all in all, I got to keep saying, you know, however many episodes it was back then when I said, I'm not looking forward to getting into this funeral for a friend, you know, the second act in the story, because I remember it being a dull, boring, stupid slog. I don't know if I said all of that, but I do remember saying it was a slog to get through. And here I am, part six, enjoying the crap out of it. Because, I, you know, I forgot about this whole Cadmus stealing Superman's body. I forgot about all that. I just, I just, my memory of this part of the storyline, that the second act, that funeral for a friend, that there was really nothing going on other than people going, oh man, Superman's gone. I'm so sad. I'm going to cry for a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to stare out the window, look up in the sky and, oh, is that Superman? Oh no, that's a bird. Oh, now I'm even more sad. That's, that's for some reason that was, that's my memory of what this whole act is. And it's not that at all. And I, I feel even more stupid than I, than I normally feel. Stupider, more stupid, dumberer, ding, dang, do. Anyway, that's it. That's the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank you, of course, for listening, sitting through all that. You know, it's a, it's a testament to who you are as a person that you're still listening, that you'll sit here and listen to me ramble on and on and tangent and, uh, and all that. And you, you stick around. I think that's, I think you're crazy. I think there's something wrong with you. You should probably get yourself tested. But if you want to provide me with some feedback, if you want to make some comments, if you had any questions, there's, there's many ways you can do that. And you've got the email, just another fanboy at gmail.com. We have the just another voice line, 785-318-6673. You can call and leave a voicemail or text me. You can find me out there on both Twitter and Instagram under the handle at Stephen or else. We're also over there on the Facebook, and for some reason, I didn't put that freaking URL in front of me, so now I got to go look for it, and I could just stay silent as I'm looking for it, and then edit everything out so it's just a seamless transition, so it doesn't look like I forgot to do something, and now I'm out here searching, but nah, it's too late. I'm into the thick of it, folks, and so there's really nothing more I can do here than just blab away as I'm looking. Ah, there it is. Facebook.com slash just another fanboy podcast. See, I knew there was something at the end. I just couldn't remember if it was pod or podcast. So it's a, it's a lucky thing I looked. Ain't it though? You can also subscribe to my newsletter. It's a free sub stack. It's called Steven Says Stuff. 
because I'm very clever when it comes to creating titles. I should have called it the, the Steve letter, right? It's a free Substack, which I, if I own Substack, I'd call it Steve Stack. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I, there's nothing I love better than just beating on a dead horse. It's like one of my most favorite things in the world. So if you're sick of the joke, <laughs> buckle in because you're going to be hearing it now for the next 20 years if I live that long. Anyway, list.justanotherfanboy.com. It's, it's a free newsletter. It's a free Substack. I send you an email with the episode of every podcast I do the morning that they're released. And you can actually respond to that email. So if you have questions, comments, feedback, you can reply to the email. So that is another way to get in contact with me. The last way is through the forums. Forum.justanotherfanboy.com. There is a forum just for Just Another Fanboy Presents. You can reach out to me there. If you want to throw a little support my way, the best way you can do it is just to tell a whole bunch of people about the show. Otherwise, if you don't want to go through any of that trouble and prefer to just throw your money at a problem, you can join my Patreon at patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. There's really not much I can give you over there in the way of reward other than doing my best to provide you with episodes of podcasts just like this one before anybody else gets them. Just you and your fellow patrons getting them two or three days early just so you can have that satisfaction and in your head say, firsties, that's all I can give you. And that's why I'm only asking for a dollar a month, the bare minimum. I don't have tiers. I mean, I do. There are tiers. You can give more, but everybody gets the same thing. That's why you only need to pay a dollar. You could also go out and rate the show on whatever podcast thing you're using to listen to podcasts if it allows you to do that. For example, Apple Podcasts, if you rate the show over on Apple Podcasts, that helps us become more searchable and it helps more people find us. Now, all of those links I just gave you, they are going to be in the show notes. And uh, I just realized as I'm getting ready to say, join me back here next week where we're going to be looking at, and then I would give you the issue and stuff. I realized that we didn't talk about the final page, the, the letters column that tells us what's coming up in the next few weeks. So why don't we do that right now? Next week, Jonathan Kent comes face to face with death as his grief for Clark pushes him over the edge. That'll be on, not on, but in Man of Steel, number 21. And then in two weeks, Never in her life has Martha Kent been so alone. Her son is dead, and on their isolated farm, miles from friends and help, her husband is dying. That's going to be in Superman number 77. And then it says in three weeks, there is no information on adventures of Superman number 500 at this time. And in one month, there is no information on Action Comics number 687. At this time, that must mean that something's going to happen in three weeks. Something's going to happen and they don't want to spoil it for you. They can't give anything away. They can't even give you any kind of tease because it's going to spoil something for you. And they don't like to do that. They want you to buy the issues. Now, as for us, all I'm going to tell you is join me here next week and I'm going to talk about Man of Steel number 21. And let's let's find out what's going on with Jonathan. All right. I hope he's OK. So until then, folks, I don't really have any kind of fun tagline thing there to say at the end or at this end. 
or whatever you want to call it. So I'm just going to say goodbye. Goodbye. I'm going to drink water here. It was quite tasty.